The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am commanding commanding to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statues of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statues and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this, pe- and all this people will also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel, all Israel, and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you who are just joining us, we have been going through the book of Exodus. In fact, we're almost at the halfway point. Exodus is 40 chapters long, and we are a couple of chapters away from uh, the middle of the book. And once we hit chapter 20 in two weeks, we'll be taking 10 weeks to go through the Ten Commandments. I'm really excited about that and what that'll look like. Um, so that's kind of where we're going, and then we'll finish out the, uh, the remainder of the book towards the end of the year. Um, but as, as we look at our text today and as we kind of evaluate the, the climate of our country and the world, one of the things, greatest needs for both organizations that are, are religious, Christian organizations, or organizations that are maybe we'd consider in the secular world, one of the greatest needs is the need for good leadership. Companies invest millions of dollars into the hiring process. Churches spend months trying to find the right pastor for the job. Why is that, you think? Why would they invest so much money and time? Well, John Maxwell, who's a leadership guru, he says that everything rises and falls on the leadership. So that means that if, if a leader is incompetent, unable to, to lead the, the company in the way that he ought to, the company will not live up to its full potential, and, and vice versa, that if, if he is a good leader, then he will see the company or the, the organization grow and reach its full potential. And what we see in today's passage um, here in Exodus 18 is that Moses, he's kind of maxed out as a leader. It's not that he's a bad leader. In fact, we've seen some very good traits of, of Moses leading up to this point. It's, it's that he's trying to do too much by himself. And because of that, the people of Israel aren't thriving. They aren't reaching their full potential. And just like God had provided food and water in the wilderness, God is going to once again provide for his people. But this time he's going to provide some advice for Moses through an unlikely man, his father-in-law. And while this advice is very practical for Moses, there are actually some deep spiritual truths that are, are relevant to us as individuals, but also to the church at large. So with that, we're going to jump right in. So if you want to open up your Bibles, Exodus 18, or your app, we, um, we, we use the YouVersion app here. Um, if you go into YouVersion, it's the Bible app, um, and you search for live events, you'll actually be able to find all of our liturgy laid out in that app. So if you want to track with us through the week or use those as devotionals, you can go ahead and do this. But we're in Exodus 18, and before we actually get to verse 1, I want to give a little bit of context for the people who are, you know, what, what's going on here? So, to go back to the beginning of the story of Exodus, we see God's people, Israel, who are, who are subject to cruel Egyptian slavery for hundreds of years. And in this toil, the oppression gets more, 
more uh, severe as time progresses and to the point where Pharaoh, who's the, the ruler of Egypt, says every Israelite son needs to be thrown into the Nile River. Get away, or get, get, do away with him. And so we see this happening, but, but Moses' mother, she kind of pushes back. She's, uh, she resists Egypt, and it's for, for his good. And she keeps Moses as long as she can, and she gets to the point where she can't keep him anymore, so she puts him in a basket and sends him floating down the Nile River. And by God's providence, Moses ends up in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter, who then raises Moses as if he is her own. And so what Moses gets to experience is he, he gets to experience life that, first of all, he gets experienced life where many of the uh, Israelite boys were killed and they didn't get that experience. But Moses also gets to experience life as Egyptian royalty where he's raised up in Pharaoh's own home. And eventually, he, I mean, he spends 40 years in this as a sort of an Israelite functioning as an Egyptian. At some point, he comes to the realization of his Hebrew lineage. And, and he's aware of that one day, and he sees a slave master uh, beating one of his own people, the Israelite people. And enraged, Moses, Moses acts out. He murders this slave driver, and he realizes now his life is in jeopardy. Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so he flees to this place called Midian. And while he's fleeing away from Egypt, he runs across this woman named Zephora, who we'll meet in our passage today, who will one day become his wife. And Zephora, Zephora brings him home, introduces him to her father, and, and he gives consent for them to be married. And so for 40 years, Moses lives with his in-laws until one day God shows up in a burning bush. And in this burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses. He says this, I am the God of your fathers, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to deliver my people and set them free. And so Moses, I don't know what Moses is thinking at this point, but Moses goes back to his father-in-law Jethro, and he asks to have his daughter to accompany, with him, accompany him back to Egypt. And the reality here is, is that Egypt is a dangerous, hostile place. There's a lot of things for, for Moses to be afraid of. And Zephora's father consents and lets him go. Now, this, this story kind of reminds me uh, of a story of, of the first American missionary who went to Burma. His name was, uh, I might mess this up, Adoniram Judson, okay? Adoniram Judson felt God's call on his life to go be a missionary, and this, again, this is one of the first missionaries from the United States to go uh, to, to Burma. And, and at this point, he was in love with this woman. Um, I forget her name, maybe Elizabeth or Anne, something like that. And um, he, he's in love with this woman and feels God has called him to both go and be a missionary and also to marry this woman. And so he does something that is kind of, he, he asks for her hand, goes to, he writes a letter asking for her hand in marriage, knowing that her parents may never see her again. And so I just want to read this to you. This is the letter that he wrote to um, his, his future wife's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, 
whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps to a violent death? Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means? from eternal woe and despair. He's asking, can you let your daughter go with me knowing that you may never see her again? And I have a feeling that's a similar sort of ask that Moses was asking of Jethro. Now, I know this isn't the main point of this passage, but I've been reading a book lately that's kind of sparked this up in me, and I I can't help to mention as we walked past, but our kids, parents, are meant to be shot out. As Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, what are arrows for? Well, they're meant to be shot out. See, so this means that there's two things that need to happen. One, as parents, we need to prepare our children to be shot out. What does that look like? We need, to, we need to prepare them to make an impact. Teach them to be upright and godly. Teach them what it's like to, to, to love the truth, to walk in love. We need to disciple them to shape their worldview. But there's also preparation that needs to happen on our end as parents. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to trust the Lord that as we release, that he will direct their paths. And even now, as we're drawing back the bow, in a sense, we need to be praying and trusting that God would do what he promises to do, that he would be faithful to his end. So as parents, we pray and prepare. You see, I don't think this was necessarily Jethro's motivation at this point because up to this point, he's not yet a Christian. But he did indeed let his daughter go. He had prepared her for this. And so Jethro blessed them and he was supportive of them, but he fully knew of the dangers that lied ahead in Egypt. And so after decades of living in his father's house, Moses goes to Egypt with a mission and his family. And things in Egypt start to heat up. God starts doing signs and wonders through Moses. He, he generates plagues to judge the Egyptians and their uh, mistreatment of the Israelite people. And, and eventually, God kills the firstborn of all Egyptians, and they are, the Israelites are sent out of this land. They get to the Red Sea, and they're backed up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind, and he wants his people back. And God splits the Red Sea, leading his people into wilderness. And at some point along the lines, as verse 2 tells us in our passage, Moses actually sends his family back to his in-laws, probably for their safety or probably to let them know that, that everything is okay. And while his family is on vacation, Moses is leading God's people through the wilderness. 
And so what we see in our passage today is that there's a family reunion that's about to happen. These, his father-in-law is going to come up with his wife and his children, and they are going to meet together for the first time in a while. So if you want to take a look at verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, and this is important because apparently uh, he he tells us that this is his father-in-law like seven or eight times throughout this passage. So his father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zephorah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other is Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now what's going on here? There's some... There's some character development that's kind of going on underneath of this sort of meetup that's about to happen. See, what we see about Moses, this character that's being developed, is Moses has not forgotten his past. He knows where he's come from. Every time he sees his sons or calls them by name, he is reminded of where God has led him. Gershom was a name that said, I was a sojourner. I had been exiled from Egypt, and I found myself in a foreign land. And then Eliezer, he's got, God helped me. Right, so these, these were, were memories, these were reminders of God's grace to Moses. And while we saw last week Israel had spiritual amnesia where they were for, forgetful of what God had done for him, this is good for Moses to be reminded of where he came from. You see, and this is true for us too. This is why every, every week when we gather for missional community, we should be praying through evidences of grace, right? Reminders of God's work that we have seen in our lives. This helps us fight against the spiritual amnesia that we are all kind of caught up in at some times. Now, that's Moses' story. Jethro's story is a little bit different. Where We are told that Jethro is a priest of Midian. And if you're kind of tracking with us up to this point, you're probably wondering why Jethro is a priest. There hasn't been, uh, we haven't seen anything about God appointing priests yet in the story. So how is it that Jethro could be a priest? Well, Jethro lives in Midian, which is a pagan land, a land full of false gods and idols. And so his role as a priest of Midian, is to not only worship these foreign idols and these gods, these, these false gods, but to lead other people in the worship of these things. See, Jethro is a man of many gods, and he's a skeptic. He's open, up, he's open to the idea of religion, of faith, and God. He's even intrigued with this Yahweh, the God of Moses. He's probably kind of curious if God could actually do what he said that he was going to do through Moses. Remember when Moses comes and asks for his daughter to go back into Egypt, he's probably wondering, is this actually possible for a guy to do, to to topple the, the most powerful person in all the world? See, there are many people in our city, maybe even people in this room, who can relate to Jethro. Maybe you're, you're skeptical 
and diligently searching for the truth. You're, you're maybe open to the idea of religion and faith, but maybe you're not quite bought in on this yet. See, the idea of community might sound intriguing. The idea of making a difference in our city sounds exciting. Even the idea that there's a God out there who isn't constantly displeased or frustrated or angry with you sounds appealing. But this all sounds too hard or maybe too impossible or, or unrealistic. There are too many question marks of how could this be? What's the motivation for keeping people in company? Why would God still love me even if, I, if I'm a sinner? And so your skepticism, your doubts, your questions lead you to seek truth. Now, this is a good place to be. If, if you are honestly seeking truth, Matthew 7, 7 is a great comfort to you because Jesus tells us those who seek will find. Those who ask, it will be given to them. If you knock, the door will be opened for you. You see, it's, this is why our church loves skeptics and loves doubters, people who are honestly pursuing truth because it's in the context of community that we're able to explore this together. See, Jethro is intrigued. He's intrigued with this God, with Yahweh. So he hears of all that God has done for Moses and Israel, and he comes to see it for himself. This, this is funny because Jesus actually told people who are, who are curious about what he's doing, come and see. He invited them to come take a look, come see for yourselves. And so we do the same. If you're skeptical, if, if you're doubting faith, we want to invite you to come and see with us, explore this together. See, it's probably hard for Jethro to believe that Moses would actually accomplish what he said he set out to do. And as we see this interaction unfold, it's interesting to see Moses' posture towards the skeptic. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7. He said, And when he sent to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. See, Moses meant Jethro, the skeptic with sincere love. Moses is the most important man in all of Israel. People, he doesn't go to people, people come to him, right? But not for Jethro. Moses runs out to meet him and the rest of his family. And certainly there's a lot of love for his family. He hasn't seen his wife in a while, hasn't seen his kids in a while. But what scripture actually notes is the way that he interacts with his father-in-law and welcomes him. He bows down before him, a sign of honor, he kisses his feet, a, a, a genuine expression of love, and he inquires of his well-being. This is an example of grace and hospitality that, mo- hospitality that Moses opens his arms while his heart is open to him, and he's full of love. See, and once they are settled, Moses starts sharing what happened. Let's look at verse 8. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. So what's going on here? Moses is telling Jethro all about what the Lord has done. He is sharing truth. So we see that there is love and there is truth. 
Moses is evangelizing to his father-in-law. Now, evangelism, that word, may, we may not know the definition. It's, it's the spreading of good news of the gospel by personal testimony or through the preaching. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're, we're in the Old Testament here. Jesus hasn't, he doesn't come in until the New Testament. How is it that Moses could be evangelized? How could he be sharing the good news of the gospel? Well, the reason here is that Exodus is a story that foreshadows the kind of salvation that God offers his people. See, with, with, the Egypt, or with Israel, they were offered salvation from the oppression of the Egyptians. And for us... The salvation we are offered is salvation in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sins and the new life that he gives us. See, many people, when we talk about evangelism, they, they kind of get squirmy or fidgety. Right? Most of us, if we're honest about this, we feel incompetent. We feel uh, like we're failures at this. Maybe we feel guilty, the sense of guilt, even at the mention of evangelism. And I just want... To, to communicate to you that I sense that too, right? I, I can get up and preach behind a pulpit, but when it comes to personal evangelism and, and building relationships and speaking truth and love, I have, feel like I've always been weak in this area. We might feel like we don't say the right things, or maybe we'll get asked a question that we don't know the answer to. But here's the thing. Our incompetence is never an excuse for our disobedience. Our incompetence, our, our seemingly, what seems to us as incompetence is never an excuse to be disobedient because it's Jesus who commanded us to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We've been commanded as Christians to do this. But here's the thing. If we have experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't need a commandment to tell us to do such a thing. If the good news is really good news to us, our natural response is to share that good news with others. It's like if, you, if you're around town and you go to a new restaurant, right? We have no, no problem telling other people about the good news of a new restaurant, right? The same sort of idea is, is true of, of the gospel, We've experienced it, if we're living it, if we're dwelling in it richly, then it'll be no problem for us. The psalmist proved this. This is sort of this evangelism is an overpouring of the heart. Where they, they speak of God. They speak of what God has done. Not so much because they're commanded to do it, because they're, they're doing it out of the compulsion of their heart. See, if, if we feel like we need be better evangelists. What we need to do is to familiarize ourselves, to dig in deeper to the gospel. We need to meditate on it. We need to, we need to let it saturate all of our lives. And, and this means asking the question, what is the good news of the gospel for me? Right? Is it, is it that God has rid me of my sin? He's taken away my guilt and shame? Is it that I have uh, an acceptance and love that cannot be taken from me? Is it that I've been made new? You see, to be better at evangelism, what we need to do is to begin with ourselves. Preach the gospel to ourselves. In that moment where, where maybe fear or, 
or um, insecurities or, or discomfort is stopping us from, from sharing the gospel, what we need to do is lean into the gospel. Because at that moment, the good news that we're believing is my comfort, that I'm more comfortable or my, my relationship seems more comfortable if I just kind of keep this on the DL. But the gospel is meant to be shared and to be proclaimed. See, and Moses shares the gospel. He shares all that the Lord has done. And he doesn't just include the high points, right? Like we can always roll out the highlight reel of all the cool things that God has done. But Moses doesn't do this. He also shares the hardships that they have faced. Certainly there have been hardships. Moses, just in the last chapter, People had a bounty out on him. They wanted him dead. Armies were attacking him. They were lacking food and water. But Moses shares all of these hardships to prove that even in the tough circumstances, God is always gracious and good to meet what their needs are. You see, and and sometimes hardships are the most helpful way for us to communicate the gospel to other people. It allows us to connect with the humanity of others and connect to their struggles. See, this has been true in my experience. Last summer, we did a sermon series through the Psalms, and and, uh, we were in Psalm, I think, 34, perhaps. I got to share about sadness. And I shared from behind the pulpit about the miscarriage that my wife and I experienced at the beginning of this year. And it certainly was a hardship for us. It was a tough season but through that season, I was able to testify and see how God had been working and he was proving to be, be good and to be true to his word and be faithful. See, and through that, there were several people who came up to me after the fact and said that that was very helpful to them. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, look at how great my sermon was. I'm saying that in that sharing my weakness and vulnerabilities and the hardships, people could connect to me in a way that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. We were even able to walk alongside other couples who had gone through similar things. Because Moses had a genuine care and compassion for Jethro, he was unabashedly truthful, not only about the good things that God had done, but even the hardships that he met them in. Now this echoes this love and this truth. This echoes what Paul commands us to do as Christians in Ephesians 4 that we are to speak the truth in love. So as Christians, our part in evangelism is twofold, to communicate our genuine concern and love for others while telling them the truth, telling them what God has done even in the midst of our hardships. See, this is what Moses does, and what happens next is incredible. Look at verse 9. And Jethro, after hearing what Moses had to say, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and Aaron came up with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You see that Jethro is converted. He goes from being a skeptic to being saved. 
And now what he does, he proclaims exclusive faith in Yahweh. Those other gods that he once worshipped and led other people in worship have fallen away. He's seen the glory of Yahweh and he is devoted to him. And So let's trace his journey here. First, Jethro examines the facts. This is what a true skeptic will do. They'll, they'll objectively examine the facts that have been laid out before them. See, Jethro knew about Moses. He knew about his plan. He knew about Egypt and, and their power and oppression. He knew about the Red Sea. He, knew, he saw the, the provision for them in the wilderness, the victory over Amalek. He saw the facts laid out in front of him. Not only did he see them, but he acknowledged their reality. See, these weren't just fairy tales. These weren't just high stories. These were actual things that actually happened. And we see this sort of acceptance and acknowledgement of this when, when Jethro rejoices in what Moses has said. Right? He sees his eyes have verified the truth. And so he says, blessed be the Lord. Or, or another way to say is, the Lord has done something great here. He acknowledges what's happened. Now the next part of kind of as we work through this, what's going on with Jethro is, is sort of a mystery to us here in the, the Old Testament. But the New Testament actually explains what's happened. See, the New Testament tells us that the Spirit of God moved in his heart. So now, now Jethro can say, now I know. Now I am certain that God is greater than all other gods. You see, simply having the facts out in front of someone doesn't change their heart. As much as we might tell them Bible truths, as much as we might try to take them through a Bible study or through a missional community curriculum, just having the truth in front of us doesn't change us. We need the Spirit of God to accompany that truth and do something that only God can do, to take a hard heart and make it soft. See, some of the most educated Bible scholars in the world are unbelieving skeptics. They know more about the scriptures than your average pastor. They see the truth out in front of them. It's there. Their Bibles are open on their desk. But they still have a hard heart toward God because they don't have the faith to believe. The Spirit hasn't moved in their heart to accomplish faith. You see, so this is something that only God can do. This is something that we as Christians, we pray for God to do. And I would guess that Moses prayed for his father-in-law, knowing the condition of his heart, knowing that he was enraptured with pagan gods. And God moved, the Spirit moved. And, and in his moving, Jethro's life is transformed. He goes from being a pagan priest of false gods who leads other people down this road of idolatry to being a man who is devoted to Yahweh. He burns offerings and offers sacrifices to God as a sign of devotion. He eats a covenantal meal before God with Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel. You see, this is a new man. This is a changed man. Jethro will not go home the same man that he came as. Upon hearing the power, the truth, and the grace of God and the Spirit's work, Jethro was completely changed. Now, we, we at Sacred City Church, we have a desire to see our city changed. 
We want our city to look more like the kingdom of God in a month from now, a year from now, five years, decades, centuries down the road. This is a desire that we have. We desire to see our city renewed. We want to see businesses thriving. We want to see places in our town that are debilitated coming back to life. We want to see the rich helping the poor. We want to see the marginalized being brought into God's family. And all of this begins with the renewal of hearts. See, what the people of our city need to know the most is they need to know the gospel. They need to know Jesus and what he has accomplished for them. They need to know about the grace that he has to forgive them of their sins and the power that he has to liberate them from their sins. See, God is sending us normal, everyday people to go do that work of proclaiming God's truth and doing it with loving hearts. You don't need a script. You don't need a pulpit. What you need is the Spirit of God to be with you as you do this work of faithfully sharing the gospel. One of the places you can start is by sharing hardships, sharing your struggles, sharing the reality of life and its difficulty. And you can share how God has met you in that. And as we are faithful in proclaiming the truth and and being hospitable and loving, God will be faithful to do his work of converting people to the faith just like he did with Jethro. And I'm praying that God would move in mighty ways in our city, that we would have several stories like Jethro to share. So this day that we see here is a great day. It's a great family reunion, but it, it's not actually fair to say it's a family reunion. It's like a new birth in the family, God's covenantal family, where Jethro is brought in. And so Jethro, he settles in to live life with his new people. Let's look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now, in last week's passage, we started to get a sense of the heaviness, the difficulty of the job that Moses has. See, last week, all he had to do was to keep his arms up as his army fought against, the, against Amalek. But even doing that was too hard for Moses. He needed help from Aaron and her, and he pulled up a big rock and sat down. He needed help. He needed support. And so from that passage, moving into this passage, we're starting to see the humanness of Moses shine through. We're starting to see his limitations and his weaknesses. You see, Moses is a limited man just like we are. He's limited in his emotional capacity. Relationally, he's limited. Spiritually, he's limited. Physically, he's limited. See, as as his limitations are exposed, he's realizing that he can't do all that's laid before him on his own. You see, and, and, and what we're seeing here is that Moses can't even keep up with the people 
every little argument has to come through him. See, this is what verse 13 is talking about when Moses is judging. It's not like some highbrow, huh, I'm judging you because you stink and you're angry and you're this. He's helping the people sort through their issue. And in doing so, he's helping to communicate God's statues and God's ways. And here's the reality that, that I think we can all agree upon, that wherever there are people, there will be problems. Why is this? It's because everyone has a selfish inward bent, a selfish inward bent that focuses on me first, right? St. Augustine calls this the incurvitus insay. It means that we are warped inward, that we focus on me more than I focus on God and others. And this is caused by sin. Sin makes me think of myself more than I think of others and this inward focus creates all kinds of issues. Jealousy, strife, impatience, lust, greediness, hostility. See, everyone, if everyone had an outward focus, things would probably be pretty good, right? Always thinking of God, always thinking of other. We'd be getting along really well. But that's not the case. There's this warpedness to us in our condition. And so this inward bent, it's an issue itself that causes other issues. And we see this all the time, not only out there in the secular world, right, where people don't get along and there's wars out there, but this happens inside the church, within, even within the context in our mission communities, right? Because of the warp of sin, we eventually have issues with the people that we do life with. Someone will say or do something that offends someone else, and then there's relational strain. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by that. It shouldn't catch us off guard. What we should do is respond to this by seeking counsel and pursuing humility. And so if we can learn anything from the Israelites in this chapter and previous chapters, it is to seek counsel and pursue humility like they did. And so they go to Moses to inquire of God. Right? This is Moses' uh, biggest responsibility as the, the main guy of God's people to communicate God's ways and to teach them how they should live. And so they go to Moses seeking help. But the implications of this on Moses' life is that Moses is a very busy man. He spends every waking moment of the day listening to people's problems. Moms, you can probably relate to this, Right? Lots of problems. Well, Moses had millions of people coming to him with their problems. It would be exhausting, tiring. It's amazing that at this point, Moses hasn't just fallen over dead, right? With all, all the problems that come to him, he's got he's to feel worn out. I think lots of leaders and pastors kind of make this mistake, like Moses does. He's trying to do too much. He can't do it by himself. And so pastors and leaders, they burn out. They ignore their limitation, their relational, spiritual, emotional, and physical limitations. And eventually health problems set in. They begin to have marriage and family issues. They're constantly stressed out or tired. See, but there aren't just physical problems here that manifest. There are also spiritual dangers here where people are dried up. Our leaders are dry and dying spiritually because they're trying to do much. 
right? If, if you're trying to, to knock out all the things on your to-do list, how could you ever make time to pray? How could you ever have time to, to, to seek God in his word and to be in community? See, Jethro sees the danger of what's going on here when he wakes up the next morning. Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. See, Jethro wakes up and says, what's going on here, Moses? What are you doing? You're going to kill yourself. You can't do this all yourself, right? This is a one-day-old Christian coming to Israel's most important man saying, what's going on? He says it's not good for two reasons. First of all, he says, Moses, it's not good for you. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn yourself out. You're trying to do too much, and you're not able to do it alone. And secondly, it's not good because it's not good for the people. They won't flourish they don't get the proper care and attention that they need, and so they'll be struck in, stuck in relational strain for longer. Now, some of us are, are in a similar spot as Moses here, where we're taking on too much, and we, we're thinking that it's up to me to do this. It's up to me to make sure my kids grow up into decent human beings. It's up to me to make sure my spouse changes. It's up to me to do everything to make my business flourish. It's up to me that my MC is taken care of. Right? I even think about this now in planting this church. I think that I'm responsible for every little detail that's going on here. And here's the pill that might be hard to swallow. You're not as important as you think. It's not that you're not important. It's not that you don't play a vital role, but it's not you who, it's not up to you to finish and do everything. See, we are still called to love our children and disciple them, certainly. That's our primary responsibility as parents, but it's not completely up to us. We have our missional community family around us. Of course, there's God who's working on our behalf. It might be, it, we might be there to be faithfully present with our spouse and, and to share with them the good news of the gospel, but it's not up to us to change hearts. That's God's work. Even with our MCs, it's our responsibility. If you're an MC leader, you have a responsibility to love and to care for your MC, but even then, you have other people around you to help shoulder that load. See, if this is true of Moses, that he's not as important as he thinks he is, couldn't it possibly be true of us? Because Jethro cares about his son-in-law and his new covenant family, he provides a suggestion. Look at the end of verse 18. It says, you are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case to God. So he's saying, what you're doing is right. You're representing God. Keep doing that. And, and you shall warn them about the statues and the law. Keep doing that work that you're doing to make them know the way in, in which that they should walk and what they should do. But here's his suggestion. Moreover, look for able men from all the people men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and, a, and place such men over the people 
uh, as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide among themselves, so it will be easier for you that they will bear the burden with you. See, this is, this is Jethro's suggestion. First of all, he makes him work. You can't do this alone, Moses. You need other people to help you. And Jethro says, look, first and foremost, God is with you. This is deconstructing the lie that we have to do it alone. First and foremost, we need God's help, and we need to be reliant upon, upon his power and wisdom to do what he's laid out. But not only does God provide himself to do that, he says, I'm, I'm going to give you people to help you, that we need other people to, to walk alongside of this. Verse 21 says, able men who fear God, who are trustworthy, that won't take a bribe, and he's going to say, divide leadership responsibility up among them. Find competent men of character. See, both are essential for what God is laying out. They need to be competent. They need to know God's ways and his, his word. But they need to be upright men, men of character who do the right thing. You see, to me, this sounds familiar to the qualifications of elders and deacons that Paul lays out in, in 1 Timothy 3. Let me just read them to you because these are the type of, of men and women for deacons that, that we need leading our church. This is what he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into con condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. These are men of competency and character. And this is what he goes into deacon. Likewise, there's similarities here. That they must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. See, this is the sort of qualifications that we have for leaders in the church. Just like the men that Moses is setting out to find to share this leadership responsibility, so too it is in the church. Men and women of character and competence. See, this church, this church right here needs men and women like this to pursue such things, to pursue, to pursue deacon and to pursue eldership, to be leaders, to be MC leaders, to help shoulder the load. You see, Moses needs help from other men so that he can do his primary responsibility, which God has called him to do, and that is to represent the people before God. That's his primary responsibility. It's not so much sorting through the problems and, and, and arguments. It's to represent the people before God. 
Now, if you're familiar with the, the New Testament, a lot of this might sound familiar, that there's the same pattern that continues in Acts 6 when the church is just being launched. And by the church being launched, I don't mean just like a church, like the church is being launched and it's starting and there's a complaint that rises up where the people aren't being cared for. Specifically, the widows aren't being fed. And the apostles, they see what's going on and they see the need, they see the validity of that need. And they say, well, what we need to do is we need to appoint men to serve and to take this responsibility. And so they appoint, they appoint men to do such a thing. And they say, it's, it isn't right for us to give up our primary responsibility, which is the prayer and, and the preaching of the word to wait tables. And so these men come in and they serve and they support their leaders in this capacity. You see, when we hear this, there's a tendency that this might rub us the wrong way. It's like, oh, is that pastor too important to do that? Oh, he must have better things to do. Here's the thing. Pastors or spiritual leaders should be leading the forefront in service of the church. But the primary act of service for the church is in through the ministering of prayer and God's word. And so to support church leaders, there need to be other people who rise up and take care of some of the practical needs that can be met in ministry. See, this is what happens with Moses to enable him to, to pursue his primary responsibility. And Ephesians 4, uh, 11 and 12 is sort of in the same vein here. When God is he's explaining sort of church leadership Paul says, and and he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. He's he's kind of lumping all those things in, in the office of eldership to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church. So what he's saying here is that pastors, the elders, the spiritual leaders, the work that they have to do is to train other people for the work of the ministry. So that means saints, your everyday, ordinary Christians, have a responsibility in the ministry to lean into that, to serve and to love, to build up the body of Christ. See, in order for the church to flourish and to expand, there has to be a delegation of leadership. See, and this is why our church is structured the way it is. It isn't isn't a sort of structure where I'm at the head and the center of what's going on here. No, that's, that's not the case at all. See, at the head of our church is Jesus Christ, the only one who is fit for such a task. He is the chief shepherd who appoints elders who are under shepherds to to be responsible for leading and shepherding the flock which he has given them. And the elders and pastors appoint deacons to carry out some of the practical parts of the ministry, to lead people in service. And then there are the members of the church who do the work of the ministry, who are caring for other people. This, this is what it looked like. Ministry looks like loving people with a sincere heart and communicating the truth to them. Just what we saw Moses do to Jethro. And so when our church is structured like this, according to God's word and his ways, we are able to, to see the flourishing of the people because people grow in leadership. As you grow in your leadership, you grow in your need and understanding of the gospel. And so the people thrive, and people, more people are able to be cared for. And the reason behind this, there's a big goal here, why Jethro's telling him to do it this way. Look at verse, uh, let's see, where am I at? 22. 22. 
Verse 22, he says, And let them judge all the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but in any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go, uh, will go to their place in peace. You see, Jethro says, do it this way because there is blessing in it for all people, for both Moses and the people he's leading. First of all, it's easier for Moses, and this might seem kind of strange. Well, why would God make the easy road, you know? Right? Doesn't it seem like in the Christian life we're always facing hardships? Well, here's God, in this matter, wants it to be easier for Moses. Life is hard enough as it is. There's no need to add to the complexity of it. And so he says, do it this way. It'll be easier for you, Moses. Secondly, he says that God will direct you. There will be shared leadership, which is collaborative. You're working together. But the ultimate collaboration that you have in your leadership is with God. Not only will God direct his people like he did with the pillar of smoke and by fire, but he will direct them in all matters, big and little. Third, Moses will endure Moses will be able to do ministry for the long haul. He won't burn out. He'll have several years left of ministry, and he'll be able to enjoy life. You see, a ministry that's based around the gifting of one man will eventually fail. There have been lots of of evidences of this in, in recent years. Because a man cannot sustain that sort of pressure. That load is too heavy for him. And so he must delegate and and give it up, raise up new leaders to come alongside of him. And and fourth, why he's doing that goal in this is that the people live in peace. It will be good for the community. You see, other people will be developed as leaders. They'll get to exercise their giftings. People will be cared for better. They have access to leaders who can give them spiritual insight. And see, the thing about this is that this has implications for you and me. Right, this means that we are given the ministry of Christ. That we, as we grow in our discipleship, are to pursue leadership in various forms. Not everyone's called to be an elder. Not everyone's called to be a deacon. But we can pursue and step into that and in caring for the needs among ourselves. See, this is a good thing for Moses to do here. And the suggestion is a great suggestion from Jethro. In fact, I want to just acknowledge the humility of Moses as we go into verse 24. So Moses listens to the voice of his father-in-law. Again, this is a one-day-old convert. And he did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. In any hard case, they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. See, this is an act of humility. This is a sign of good leadership that, that they listen to other people. See, Moses didn't double down on the way he was doing things. He saw the truth of what, what Jethro had to say. Right? This is a mark of a good leader. Anyone who listens and acts for the improvement of his people. Or Moses is thinking, if the people are going to thrive, I need to change the way that things are. I need to be a better leader. I need help from God and from others. And what that looks like this time is I need a new system and how to minister. And verse 26 shows us that, that the system is working. They, they're judging people and they're doing things and they're sharing the load of the burden of ministry. We see able men, competent men of character doing their thing. 
But Moses still plays a vital role. He's needed for the hard cases. If one rung of leadership doesn't sort out the problem, then it graduates to the next and so on until it reaches Moses. And even though the system was working and, and helped relieve Moses in a lot of his duties, there is still a foundational problem that keeps popping up, a problem that needs to be dealt with. And it's the warped nature of the Israelites. It's not, at this point, Moses is dealing with the implications of the warped nature. They're dealing with the circumstances and what the the warped nature produces. But there is no system, there's no shared leadership structure, no leadership course that could manage or fix the inward curve, the warpedness of the Israelites. See, that's one matter that Moses and his leadership are completely incompetent and underqualified to deal with. In fact, any pastor or leader is incapable of dealing with this. But the issue keeps coming up. You can't escape it. Everywhere you go, there it is, that inward curve, our, 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 our warped nature that focuses on me and, and, and ignores God and others. See, this is the fundamental problem of sin, the inward bent that we all have. Not only does it cause us to sin, but it's sinful in itself. The leaders can resolve this issue. Not even Moses could fix this problem. See, what made it impossible for Moses to fix this problem is that he had the very same issues, that he himself was warped. Because Moses was a sinner, he was warped, there is no way for him to objectively take care of this issue. So if the warped man, if the people, the warped people of Israel wanted to be fixed and their problems solved, they needed a leader who was unwarped. They needed one who was competent in God's ways, who knew the statutes and God's laws and could keep them perfectly. They needed a leader who was uh, of upstanding character, who did not have that inward bent. You see, Jesus is that leader. He walked with humility, Philippians 2.6, not counting equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself and he served. Jesus knew all of God's laws and he kept them as he told us in Matthew 5.7 that he did not come to abolish or get rid of the law, but he came to fulfill it, that he kept it perfectly. And it's Jesus that didn't have that inward bent or that warpedness. Because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born without sin. He did not have that warped nature that we all have. So you can see that Jesus is the better Moses, the better leader, the only unwarped leader. And like Moses, Jesus had a primary focus he says it in John 18, 37. Jesus said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. See, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, the truth of God's love for his people. And he did this by going to the cross to die for our sins, to die for the sins that our warpedness has caused so that we could be forgiven. But he not only dies for our sins and our warpedness, but he dies to make us unwarped. He takes our hearts and he transforms them. Essentially, he gives us a new heart 
so that we can walk in God's ways and keep his statutes as he taught us to do. You see, Jesus is the only leader who can do this. He's the only leader that can take care of the problem of his people. I can't do this. Moses couldn't do it. Your MC leader can't do this. Your podcast pastor can't do this. Jesus is the only one who can handle this. See, you need a leader who can deal with your deepest problem. You need a leader who acts on your behalf. You need a leader who teaches you how to live. And Jesus does this as he makes us new. And we're about to take a meal today that is not only a reminder of the work of Christ and what he has done to remove our sin from us, but it is a means of grace which makes us new. It, it flattens us out. It makes us unwarped so that we can be others-focused and God-focused. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done in the gospel and how you have given us your son to be the one true leader, the one who knows your ways and abides in them, the one who, who thinks of God and others more than he thinks of himself, that he would lay his life down for us. And I pray, Father, that this good news of the gospel would sink in deep and transform our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would, you would able our feet and our lips for the service of evangelism and sharing such a good news for a city that needs the gospel. I pray that you would be, be generous and kind to us in showing us your work through the conversion of many, that we would be able to see people come to faith and baptize them in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray for um, our church as we raise up leaders, MC leaders and deacons and elders, that you would be gracious to supply men and women to serve the church in that way and mobilize the saints for the work of the ministry, Father, so that you may be glorified and your gospel may spread throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.